This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Praise the Lord. Well, you will want to turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. And I had a, a different message prepared, but as I was out walking this morning, um, I, uh, I felt that I should change things. And so as a result, I'm a little unprepared on this, but I do believe that this is uh, where we need to be today. And um, I believe this will, will be helpful for us. And so we'll have a look, we'll have a read in First Samuel in just a moment. And we're going to pick up on a couple of key lines that are in there. One thing that I have repeatedly heard from many believers over the years and is justifications for certain behaviours. And these can be all kinds of behaviours, you know. Um, sometimes they can be um, uh, outwardly sinful behaviours and sometimes they're just, you know, dubious Behaviors. Sometimes it's holding on to, you know, a uh, a trait, uh, you know, and and they don't want to deal with that in the in the time, um, and so the justification that comes along with it is what I'm concerned about. It's not so much the behavior. You and I, we do things wrong, you know. That's what happens. Um, we're, we're in a situation where, uh, you know, there's a little bit of tension and uh, our spouse says something and so we snap back in anger. Um, you know, that, and we know that that's not right to, to take out that anger on, on somebody else, uh, whether that's husbands or wives. But the... The issue is not so much that we do something wrong. The issue is how do we then respond to that? How do we deal with that behavior afterwards? 1 Samuel 15 has a great account, a a wonderful account of this occurring. And so if we get a little bit of background, and I would encourage you to read through the whole chapter, You'll, you will gain a lot from reading through this chapter. This is one of the chapters, whenever you encounter the angry atheists, this is one of the chapters that they will use to um, talk about the evil nature of God as far as they're concerned. You know, Look, God commanded them to go and destroy the Amalekites. And so they say that just off the surface like that and, and uh, they have no, uh, there, there is no research into why that was, the terrible sins the Amalekites had committed and the, the unrepentant behaviour that they had had. They had held on to this unrepentant behaviour and so this was the reason why they were being judged and it wasn't without warning and caution uh, to them and so just, just be aware of that. This, this is a brutal passage of Scripture. 
So I, I would urge you to do some study into that yourself. But here we have two key figures. We have the prophet, whose name is Samuel, for whom the book is named. And we have a king named Saul. And Saul was a man who the children of Israel, when they demanded the prophet, when they said, we want a king, give us a king like the other nations have. They have kings. And look how good it is. Because they have kings, they've got kingdoms. And, you know, this is social status. We want a king as well. And so um, the Lord warned them that if you have a king, this king will put a tax on you. He'll take your children off into armies and he will fight enemies and your children will perish and there'll be taxations and all different kinds of suffering will come upon you as a result because the children of Israel were to keep God as their king. This was a theocracy, not a kingdom. And so it was on earth a, a, a kingdom with God as the king of kings. Anyway, they persisted and Saul was chosen and he was chosen for the most um, uh, carnal reason, we might say, because he stood head and shoulders above the crowd. He was outstanding in the crowd, so to speak. And in other words, he was a tall man. And so, who do you want to be your king? Him! You know, is the response. And, and so they picked this guy because he stands out in the crowd. As if that is some kind of recommendation uh, for him. And so they pick him, he becomes king. But he doesn't have the character preparation in his life that will bring him to a place where he will humbly serve the Lord and lead the people in the right way. And, and so he's thrust into this position. Uh, the whole you know, thing of being king goes to his head. And, and, uh, but Saul is spiritually a lazy person, King Saul. And so he doesn't take the word of God seriously. Samuel the prophet in chapter 15, uh, verse 1, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I said to you, this is a tough passage of Scripture, but there is history behind this that you should study into. I don't want to get caught on that so much this morning. So God commissions Saul, and the instructions are pretty clear, I would say. The instructions are very clear. It was time for their destruction because of how they had treated Israel and there had been no repentance from them in the intervening period. But Saul thought that he could alter the command of God. He thought he could take what God spoke and that he could 
deal with this command in his way. Now, at the root of that is basically a rebellious heart. That's what is at the root of that kind of thinking, you know, that, well, you know, God said that, but, you know, he understands that I'm like this. And that's how a lot of people approach this in this day and age. God said that, you know, a man should leave his mother and father and cleave in a marriage union to his wife. But he knows that, uh, that, uh, that me and Sarah Jane, we're in love and so we're married in the eyes of God. People do this. They justify their position in however they want to live by trying to say that God understands or by bringing in their frailties into it as if obedience was not something that they can do because they're weak in some area. So Saul thought that he could alter the command of God and verse 4 to 9 says in verse 4, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talaam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So here he is doing the right thing in this place. He's given these people from a different tribe uh, the opportunity to get out. Uh, So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. All good until the next sentence. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless this, the remainder of this message. Father, we thank you. Lord God, we look to you for direction. We look to you for leading. We look to you, Lord, for a word from your word. Help us in our hearts, Lord God, to humble ourselves before you that we might learn from you and that we might commit our hearts to walking in obedience to you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the background of the situation. You have to understand that Samuel for whom the book is titled, he's a prophet of God in the Old Testament. And these men, and, and especially uh, Samuel, the, uh, well, not, not, not just Samuel, but these men had this function in the Old Testament of direct revelation. And so... Uh, you and I have an intermediate revelation by and large, which is the Word of God. And it's something that God has given for us as His Word to us so that we can 
read his word and learn from his word. As scriptures were being collated and put together in this period of time in the scrolls and various different things, the prophets were people who functioned in such a way that God would speak to them to say things to people and to go and do things. And so Samuel is one of them. And then verse 10 in this text says, The the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So here is a man who despite knowing that God is right in his judgment of Samuel in the situation, uh, his judgment of Saul in the situation, Samuel goes before the Lord in tearful prayer over this circumstance. Verse 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Well, this is something we didn't read about in this passage here, but, you know, Saul's marauding army and and he's going along and look at the victories we've had. I'll set up this monument here so that people, when they come along, they'll go, Hail, hail King Saul! How awesome is King Saul! What a great king King Saul is. But, you know, there's an, there's an old adage that says self-praise is no praise at all. And so when, when you're of a people of the Christian church, for example, or in this case of the children of Israel, you have one God to worship and no one is to set themselves up as an intermediary between you and God. And so Saul setting up these, uh, this monument for himself. And so here's Samuel. God said to him, I regret that Saul has not, I regret putting him in place. He has not obeyed my commandment. And along the way to there, someone comes and tells uh, Samuel that Saul has set up a monument to himself. Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him. All right. So that's the interesting thing. So here comes Samuel. He's coming down the road. And so Saul comes out and meets him. And here's what Saul says. There's no record of what Samuel says at this point. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, Samuel knows that this is incorrect because the Lord has told him, Saul has not performed my commandment. But he's come out and he approaches the prophet. Now, when you have dealings with people like this, who you know from history are people who will come and they will stand in front of kings in front of the people and will rebuke the people with what God has told them, you want to be careful on making self-declarations. But Saul, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's riding high on his own narcissistic tendencies at the moment. He sees himself as something that he is not. 
And, uh, and so he's making this declaration. And so Samuel's response after he says, I've performed the commandment of the Lord, is to say to him, so what's the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Actually, I love that verse in the Bible. I just think it's a fantastic verse because, you know, growing up in the country and working on farms uh, throughout my uh, youth years uh, and, and worked with the Department of Agriculture during school work experience for two weeks and, you know, it's just such a great description. How come I can hear the sheep and the cows? The bleating, the lowing. So, you know, get around some cattle yards and hear the lowing. It's an, it's an awesome sound. Saul said, they have brought them. Well, I want to deal with a very basic matter here this morning. And, uh, and that is, first of all, the issue is here, how did God speak to King Saul in that time? And the, and the first thing that we have to note is that it's through the prophet that God spoke to Saul. And it was a, 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 a message he couldn't confuse. It was a very straightforward message. Go and destroy. These people have sinned. They showed no mercy to the Israelites when they were being chased by enemies. They showed no mercy to them. They, they allowed them to be hemmed in and then uh, they sold some of them in slavery. The terrible history with the Amalekites and uh, the things that they did to betray them. And the Amalekites are the half-brothers of Israel. They're, they're an offshoot in the, uh, who are related into the Israelites. And so they had a responsibility to the Israelites as kinfolk. And this is very important. And God expected them to honour that responsibility, but their behaviour was, was immoral, and so now God was judging them. This is an important part of the prophet's life and ministry, is that he is to hear from God and declare it to the people. And so here goes a prophet who is going to walk up to the king who can have him killed, and he's going to say to the king, you are in error. You're in error. Samuel had declared to Saul the commandment from God. It was simple, and yet Saul disobeyed. But a couple of things that are alarming here is that Samuel, first of all, he's either seriously blind to his sinful behaviour, which I doubt. Or he's so wrapped up in, in his own narcissism by this stage that nothing he does is wrong in his opinion. And so, yes, God may have given that command, but I'm the king. And so I will do what I want. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Well, Samuel doesn't fall for that. What is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen? Saul said they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep of the, uh, and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Enough. 
I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. So this passage reveals the deception of his heart. And the the first is that he wanted the credit for what he had done. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. That's what he said. The second is he then wanted to deflect his wrongdoing everywhere else. Right? When, as soon as Samuel says to him, how come I can hear these sheep and cattle? His response is, they brought them. They, they brought them because they wanted to make a sacrifice to the Lord, your God. His deflection here is everywhere but to himself. They brought them. It's sacrifice to the Lord your God. Doesn't, doesn't this make you happy, Samuel? Like, come on, seriously. This is, what, this is what they've done. And so he's deflecting everything. Go to verse 17. Then Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, and uh, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Now there's a very, I've mentioned the word narcissism a couple of times, there's a very self-serving function in what Saul did with sparing Agag. And, And that is because of the message that will go out to other kings around the area. When, when he spared Agag, that message goes out and other kings hear, Whew, well, we'll be okay because if, if the Israelites ever overrun us, he'll spare me because I'm the king. And so he might then bank a little bit of credit for mercy in case he's ever overrun by a neighbouring nation that they might look at his track record and say, well, he was magnanimous of heart towards these other kings and so we'll show him some benevolence as well. He's he's trying to buy up favour with the neighbouring nations by doing this. Look how terrifying we are, but hey, you kings, look how kind I am. But I have... But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen. The list is growing now, isn't it? There's, there's not only sheep and oxen and the best of the things. There's Agag, the spoil, the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things. Devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to, all this gold and silver that we've collected here, we're, we're going we're, we're to destroy it in sacrifice to the Lord. But you're, miss, you're missing the point, Saul. Actually, you're sidestepping the point. So Samuel 
says in verse 22, and, and from here we get one of the, the great passages of Scripture. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The fat of rams is a reference to the type of sacrifice that would be made and that they would take the fat and they would offer it to the Lord. And For rebellion is as a sin of divination or witchcraft and presumption. Now, I think you have a couple of different translations. What's the next word? What's the word used there instead of presumption? Stubbornness. Stubbornness. Is as... Iniquity and idolatry. Remember, here's King Saul. As Samuel's coming in, someone comes and says, listen, Saul set up a monument to himself. And now Samuel reveals to Saul that stubbornness is in the sins of iniquity and idolatry. Saul is wanting people to remember him and one of the attributes of stubbornness is idolatry. Why is that? Because in idolatry, and thank you for the question, in, in idolatry you or, or in stubbornness, you are placing yourself on the throne of your life in control. you not allowing yourself to be shifted. And so in that moment, you are removing the worship of God and his control over your life in stubbornness and saying, God, sorry, that doesn't apply to me. On this issue, I rule my heart. Isn't it interesting that here's a man that Samuel identifies as being stubborn and stubbornness is a sin of idolatry, Saul? By the way, I did hear about this memorial you set up for yourself down the road. That's, that's externally setting up this, this uh, idolatry of his own heart. Now, how he views himself is being shown to other people. It's a powerful revelation, isn't it, this, this passage, you know? And, and it's very stirring and very challenging to us because when we bring this down into today. We can learn so much. And so then Samuel says to him, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Let's jump over to Second John. James, Peter, John, Jude, Revelation, all up the back end of your New Testament. Second John, verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children. Now, when he, when he talks here about your children and he, and he speaks of a lady here, he's actually writing to the persecuted church and so to disguise things, he refers to the persecuted church as a lady uh, in this situation. And so... Uh, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as 
we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ Jesus in the, in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, there is there's a whole probably series of sermons in this passage. But let's look at the simplicity of this, that there is a commandment within this passage that you and I should walk in love, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you walk in it. That you and I are to walk in love. There's an underlying assumption in this edict from John that genuine faith in Christ walks in obedience to the words of God. And this is principally in the realm of love. That's how it's shown out. Everything about the Christian life is revealed in motivations of love. Motivations of love for God and love for our neighbour. When Jesus was confronted and trying to be tricked by the religious people of the day and trying to debate him, which is the greatest commandment. He said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Oh, and the second is similar, to love your neighbour as yourself. Now, the world has turned that around and, and, and faith, prosperity, preaching turns that into this recipe whereby you... You know, you can't love someone else unless you really love yourself first. That's not at all what Jesus was talking about when he said the second commandment is similar, that you love your neighbour as yourself. What he's saying there is, as, as a believer and as someone who walks and follows God, the things that you desire for your life, you should desire those for other people. So you should be moved with compassion for people in difficult circumstances. You should be moved with compassion for those who are struggling in a a difficult marriage or those who are are struggling with difficult financial situations. You should be moved to offer prayer, to offer help, uh, to offer support, whatever it is, and that is loving them as you love yourself, because you desire those kinds of things for your own life. Amen? We, we see the benefit, hindsight, of going through troubling and difficult times, but nobody wants to go through it beforehand. So when we see someone going through those times, we should be moved with compassion for them. Now, love, to be moved by... Love. This is 
This is not the same thing as being emotionally driven. I'm a kind of emotionally driven person, you know, just a little bit. And But I'll tell you, love is not a good feeling. That's not, that's not love. Love has very, can have very little to do with feelings at all, in fact. A person may love their enemy. And in the process of doing that, feel very little emotion. In fact, they may battle within because they know that scripture compels them to love their enemy. And they may have a huge battle. And I remember hearing uh, Corrie Ten Boom's testimony about you know, the author of The Hiding Place, a young Dutch Jewess imprisoned with her, her family and, and they were all killed except for her, I believe. And, um, and, and so she, after the, the war was over and she was liberated, um, for many years she spoke to crowds of people about how God had saved her life and uh, she gave the gospel message and different things. And, and at one of these speaking engagements with a large crowd, a man came up and he had been one of the prison guards who had repeatedly raped her and her sister and asked for her forgiveness. And right there she knew that God was was confronting her with the reality of whether her love was real or whether she spoke about it and didn't live it. And she was able to forgive this man and, you know, how liberating for that man and how amazing for him to have the humility to come and ask for forgiveness, but how liberating for that man to be forgiven by somebody who, who years before he had treated so horribly. You see, love, love is, real love is never going to be a simple thing. Sometimes you hear Christians say, oh yeah, we were so in love, but we're not in love now, and we fell out of love. Fair dinkum. You, you what? You know, how can, how did you, how did you come to this way of thinking to begin with? Because love is not something about falling. Love is something about doing. It's something about responding. In fact, when we're given, especially you men sitting here, when we're given the instructions on how to love. Paul says that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself. Now, the indication of that is not, you know, oh, let's go out on a nice romantic date, honey. You know, the indication of that is not this kind of feeling that's taking place. The indication of that is this is a struggle, but I'm putting myself aside to do the loving thing. Imagine if we said that about God, you know, um, 
I'm out of love, or we put this emotional em- emphasis into it. Instead of for God so loved the world, you know, we, we might have that God so felt so in love with the world that he watched in sympathy as it went to hell. He felt it, though. He was moved. I mean, he was so emotional about it. It doesn't say that. It says God demonstrated his love while we were still his enemies, is what the scripture says. He loved his enemies. And that's the example that Corrie ten Boom brought into that room when she forgave that prison guard. For God so loved the world, then what it says is the action of that love. He what? He gave his son. That's the action of that love. And so when you and I come to passages of scripture that speak so clearly about what we're to do, that's where we are to respond in simple obedience. Go, Saul, go and do this thing. He didn't do it, but he claimed he had. Then he blamed everyone else. You know, husbands, love your wives. Ah, I would have, but you don't understand the cow I was married to. You know? I think God understood. I think God understood. That's the point of the text, that God gave despite the fact that you and I were his enemies. 2 Corinthians 10 says from verse 3 on, For we, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The New Living Translation says this really well. We're human, but we do not wage war as humans do. Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And the strongholds in the context there are realms of thinking. Right? And it goes on, it says, we destroy arguments, right, realms of thinking. We destroy our ideas and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought into uh, captive to obey Christ. Here it is. Our thinking is edited and adjusted by the word of God. We take that in and we walk in obedience is what it says. In fact, he goes on, he says, we're ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The NLT says, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Now, the NLT kind of swings around on our duty towards other people and I believe most translations really are speaking about our responsibility within our own realm of thinking. Wrong ideas are replaced with the right thinking of God's word so we can walk in obedience. This is the rubber meets the road Christianity. This is where it comes down to. This is the simplicity of what does God want me to do?
we're so in love, you know, we're, we're living together, we're going to get married, we just don't have enough money yet, because it costs so much money to get married, you know. You shall not commit adultery. The word is fornication in its root doesn't apply to actually just having uh, marital or sexual relations with another man's wife. You shall not commit adultery. Then Jesus says, in fact, you are not to even look at another person, another woman with lust in your heart. Oh, but we're so in love. You're hooked on a feeling, man, and it's leading you into sin. You're not in love. If you're love, in love, put a ring on it. To quote someone I hate to quote. This is the where the rubber meets the road Christianity. That's where it's at. So what does God's word say? Now do it. That's That's where it's at for us. Here are some examples of stuff I've heard. Chris and I have heard this one a few times. I'll evangelize when the Lord lays it on my heart. Oh, let's let the Lord lay it on your heart. All right? Here's how the Lord lays it on your heart. Second Corinthians 5 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18. That is, this is what Paul says the ministry of reconciliation is. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against themselves and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And here's the appeal. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says, as the church, we plead with people to get right with God. That's what he says. Well, you know, what, what I'm saying is the principle is simple. When you read something in Scripture, this is the Word of God's Spirit. That is the Spirit speaking to you. The Spirit inspired this Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. When the Word is clear about something, you don't need it to be laying on your heart. It's that simple. Oh, yes. I'll, um, I'll, uh, yeah, pick anything. Pick, pick anything that you know you should do sacrificially for your spouse or, or in serving your brothers and sisters. I'll do that when God lays it on my heart. 1 Peter 3 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared. I'll evangelise when the Lord lays it on my heart. In your hearts, honour Christ as the Lord, 
uh, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always being prepared. In my experience, most people, most people don't come up and say, hey, tell me about the hope that is within you. But I've had it happen. And it happens, the times that it happens are in working relationships with people where you're working with them day after day in the job. I I can still remember many years ago, I was a young believer, Suzanne and I, newlyweds in our first year in this dingy little flat, going to work each day. And and I worked with this fellow named Frank who, you know, I really wanted to see Frank get saved. And But the thing that spoke to him most was, why are you so happy all the time? I was sharing the gospel with him and all this kind of stuff and it was going right over his head. And then one day he said, why are you so happy all the time? He'd... He was miserable. He gambled his way into debt time and time again. You know, some people say, I'll stop drinking when the Lord reveals it to me. Well, you know, there's split opinions within Christianity whether Christians can drink or not. And But I'll tell you one thing we can't do. First Peter 4 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The stuff that the Gentiles wanted to do is over now, he writes to the church. That's over. What kind of things? Living in sensuality, their worship of Diana and the temple prostitutes, all this kind of stuff. That's gone, he's saying. Passions, just following your desires, drunkenness. That's gone, he says. Orgies, drinking parties. Not enough to have drunkenness, it has drinking parties as well. And lawless idolatry. Christians are really quick to get on the bandwagon with, with idolatry and orgies. You know, oh man, we know they're wrong. Sit around and have a few drinks and get drunk? Oh, I don't get drunk. How do you know? At what point do you do or not? You know? So I'm not saying that drinking is a sin, but drunkenness is. And so you don't need God to come along and make your heart go all fluttery and say, oh, I just had a revelation. I shouldn't get drunk. It says it in his word. Don't get drunk. Read through Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord, and do not get drunk with wine. It couldn't be any clearer, could it? For that is debauchery. So you can, I'm not a very imaginative kind of person, but you can think of lots of other situations that you can apply this to. I'm just waiting on a word for the Lord. Concerning this, concerning that, you know. What about your marriage? What about what about dating? There, there's there's one dating. What about sex outside of marriage? You know, these kinds of things. The scripture speaks about it. So when the scripture speaks about it, walk in obedience to that. 
Honour God in that thing. You don't have to wait. Oh, but we're just so in love. That kind of passion will lead you into all kinds of trouble. You know, Suzanne and I, we before we got married, we, we did not have um, a sexual relationship. And uh, one time at her sister's place, uh, just be, just share this with you so you understand it, that, you know, when we put ourselves in isolated places of temptation, we have to be really careful. And one time I remember that uh, that. Uh, this is just before we got married in the, in the two weeks before and we were uh, uh, at her sister's place laying on the floor in the living room listening to Christian music and I leaned over and kissed her and uh, you know so we had a pash um, that's our generation and we were so disappointed with ourselves go forward Uh, 20-something years in Chris and Jenny's wedding and they kissed each other at the altar for the first time and I looked out into the church and everyone was crying. Because they'd kept something sacred there, you know, that they'd held themselves for each other in in that moment. And I'm not saying that, that you and I have to abstain from any kissing, all that kind of stuff. But sex outside of marriage is a W-R-O-N-G. The W is silent. It's wrong. That's what it is. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. So don't do it. These kinds of things. Heed the word. Because Saul ended up a deranged, deranged, deranged individual, King Saul. Very deranged, bitter man who went into some evil forms of of, uh, practice in his life. Lost the kingdom. Heed the word. That's... That is rubber meets the road Christianity right there. You know, time has passed for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. That's gone now that you're a believer, is what Peter's saying. That's gone. Walk in a way to honour Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. That's all I've got. Praise God. Now, I'll just go back to the drinking thing. I'm not arguing a legalistic stance on zero drinking. I don't drink, haven't drunk since just before I became a Christian. When I became a Christian... That just strengthened my stance on it. Some people can drink in moderation. Um, I never could before I was a Christian. Could I now? I don't know. Am I interested? Definitely not. It has no 
could I sit down with an ice cold beer on a, on a hot summer's day after a long day at work? For sure. For sure. That was one of my favourite things after working in the heat. But I'm not going to do it because I have no off switch. And so for my own sanctification, that's a trap for me. So, because drunkenness is a sin. And that's that, you know. I did it for other reasons before I became a Christian because I saw the dollars going out of my pocket and my licence was something I valued. And, uh, you know, I was drinking and driving out in the bush, all that kind of stuff. And So I did it for those reasons. When I became a Christian, I felt very challenged that I should not return to drinking at all. So... I'm not saying that you can't drink, but I am saying Scripture forbids drunkenness. <coughs> so, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I've enjoyed today. What a wonderful time we've had. Praise God. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. Lord, help us to walk in such a way that would honour you and glorify you each day. Help us, Father, to wake up in the morning and set aside time to spend with you in your word. Lord, to ask questions of you as to what you would have us do for that day, to commit ourselves to living for you for that day. We praise you and we thank you this morning. Uh, Bless each one here today, Lord God, and bless our fellowship together as we um, share in some communion uh, with one another. In Christ's mighty name, amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.